The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. We come to the last part of a short summer series where we delve into the world of the mafia, its history, the inner workings, and the downfall of the main five mafia families. As you know, gambling and drug trafficking, loan sharking, protection rackets, infiltration of trade unions, these were just some of the ways that the American mafia made its its millions. So, in this final instalment, I'll be speaking with Jeffrey E. Grell, a U.S. attorney and a recognised authority on the so-called RICO law, the law that brought down one of the most feared mafia bosses, John Gotti. The jailhouse gates rumble down as a prison van carries John Gotti to a future behind bars. Prosecutors say, Don Vallard, goodbye to John Gotti. He's headed now for the prison yard. The Teflon is gone. The Don is covered with Velcro, and every charge in the indictment stuck. John Gotti knows it all too well tonight. After a six-year crusade to bring him down, the government's case stuck to him like glue. Tonight, John Gotti stands convicted, found guilty on every count against him. And the top dog in the country's most powerful crime family can only look at the moon through jailhouse bars. Now, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, uh, in other words, the RICO Act, uh, what is it and how did it come about? It is a statute passed by the United States Congress back in 1970. And at the time it was passed, for the exclusive purpose, really, of combating organized crime in the United States and, in particular, mafia-style crime families uh, like the Gambinos and the Casey's. And, uh, and it has been uh, used uh, for various purposes ever since then, and, and it's evolved in quite a different way than I think anybody could have anticipated back in 1970. Now, it was brought in and designed to address a particular problem, and that was the problem of the guys who don't get their hands dirty. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, We've all seen the Godfather movie, and when you look at uh, a scene like the wedding scene when uh, Vito Corleone is sitting in his his den petting his cat and everybody from the family is coming in and asking for favors and and every from the one from the neighborhood, uh, Vito Corleone, of course, doesn't go out and, and do anything. He sits in his den and he just tells his men what to do. And under the prior laws that existed, uh, it was always difficult to prosecute someone like Vito Corleone because uh, generally that godfather figure, the boss figure, gave such general instructions, you know, take care of the neighborhood or or make this guy an offer he can't refuse, or uh, let's put some pressure on it. Uh, they were they were very these these crime bosses. They they didn't necessarily know that anyone in particular was going to get married murdered. They didn't care. They didn't know if a particular crime was going to be committed at a particular place or time. And so, under traditional conspiracy laws, you you had to have some evidence that uh, the perpetrator had specific intent to commit a particular crime. RICO uh, imposes liability on a person for simply operating and managing a criminal organization with intent to operate and manage a criminal organization. It doesn't require that the godfather figure have that specific knowledge of a specific crime. And and that was really a revolutionary step in the law because uh, prior to that, obviously, uh, what I'm saying is that you, you, you couldn't be held liable 
just for operating and managing a crime family. But after RICO, you could. So the idea was that if you're running a crime family, irrespective of what it's doing, that that in itself is a crime, even though you might not be found guilty of a murder or a blackmail or extortion or whatever it might be, loan sharking, um, you would not be found specifically guilty of that. But if your organization was shown to be doing this, well, then you had to take the hit. Correct. And there is always an element of intent in in any criminal statute. You can't commit a crime negligently uh, or by accident. You you have to have criminal intent. And so the intent under RICO is that the defendant, the the mob boss, needed to uh, intentionally operate and manage uh, a group of people mm. that was engaged in criminal activity, racketeering activity. Mm. No. Uh, so it wasn't, the intent wasn't related to a particular crime. It was in, it related to uh, being the leader of uh, a group of people that was engaged in crime. Mm. Now, did the mob understand how dangerous this act was going to be uh, to them? I mean, were there forces uh, lobbying on, the, on their behalf trying to stop it being made law? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, ever since Prohibition, uh, which is when the, the the crime families, the Gambinos and the Casey's and, and the Genovese families, the, the ones we've all heard of, uh, they all came up during Prohibition, uh, mostly for the purposes of supplying alcohol to the market when the U.S. government had prohibited it. And that also coincided with a, with a, with a spike in immigration from Italy. Uh, and so, um, for years, for decades since prohibition, there had always been talk of, of a statute, the federal statute that would regulate organized crime. And the one person who stood in the way of that, ironically, was the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. He was, uh, historically opposed to any kind of legislation. He, he denied that even, he denied the existence of organized crime in the United States. And then finally, in 1970, and, and Hoover was a very powerful man, as we all know, and, and finally in 1970, when he was l- literally dying in office, uh, uh, his power was waning, his influence was waning, um, Congress was able to get this statute passed. And of course, in the U.S. political system, I'm sure we had, I'm not blaming at all on Hoover, I'm sure there were elements that were lobbying congressmen and senators even back then, uh, elements that benefited from organized criminal activity and were probably donating to campaigns and and uh, taking political pressure off of those groups in that way. How many of uh, the bosses of the five most notorious families were actually got under the RICO law? Well, not many. I mean, that's that's the... The, the kind of irony. I mean, RICO was used mostly to address large sweeps, like probably the most famous use of RICO in U.S. history was Rudy Giuliani, of all people. Uh, we forget sometimes that Rudy Giuliani wasn't always this, uh, you know, carnival barker for for uh, Donald Trump. There was a time when Rudy Giuliani was a highly respected prosecuting uh, attorney, a U.S. attorney here in the Southern District of New York, Manhattan. And uh, he used RICO to clean up the Fulton Fish Market in Manhattan, which was a mob front for a very, very long time. 
And uh, that was, again, a, a sweeping indictment where many, 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 many people were indicted under the RICO statute, but not anybody that that historically, you know, their, their names are, are a matter of uh, household uh, usage. Uh, the Carlo Gambinos, the Lucky Lucases, the the our lucky Lucianos, the the big named uh, uh, Frank Costello, those those guys, they all died mostly before Rico was passed. Paul Castellano, he was assassinated a few years in the mid seventies, a few years after Rico was passed. So uh, those early or those those big name gangsters, basically their careers had all come to a natural end. Uh, when Rico was enacted, uh, the the most famous mob boss to be uh, convicted under Rico was John Gotti, but that was you know the late eighties, early nineties, in that time period. So it was even twenty years after Rico had been passed. Um, and then since then, we've had some notorious criminal prosecutions. Just recently, R. Kelly, who's not a mob boss but a rapper, he was convicted under Rico, and. Uh, and then we have uh, Young Thug, who, who that's a, 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 a prosecution under the Atlanta or the Georgia RICO statute, statute, the state RICO statute. He's another rapper here in the United States that's uh, been indicted and is uh, facing trial under RICO. To what extent do you think the passage of RICO alerted the mafia that it was time to to go legit, uh, to go into real estate, to go into casinos in Vegas and uh, in uh, Atlantic City, that there was a way to use the ill-gotten gains to invest in legitimate business and make your money the legal way. Well, I think it's always, uh, you can look back at American history. Uh, I'm not a historian, but uh, it's a discussion that I've heard uh, others have. Uh, and then just as, an, as a matter of, of, of economics, um, usually the way an, an immigrant group gains economic power in the United States is through less than legitimate activity. And, and, and for the, the, unfortunately, for Italian-Americans, like I said, they came along at a time when prohibition uh, was in force here in the United States. And so... They, as a recent immigrant group, used that opportunity to illegally traffic alcohol to acquire wealth. And uh, over the course of time, they had acquired enough wealth illegally to, to like you said, go legit. And so a lot, a, a little, I would say a little, a lot of, of the mafia uh, and, and, their, and their, the legitimization of their business just occurred as a natural, a natural evolution um, and, and yet, you know, today, like I said, we, we have street gangs that are getting, uh, that are getting indicted under RICO. And those are a lot, a lot of times Latino groups, uh, Asian groups, uh, even Somali groups and Hmong groups here in, in the Twin Cities. We've seen that in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Uh, and those are all more recent immigration groups that have not, uh, yet acquired economic power in the country. And so just as a natural kind of way in which things occur, the lowest people on the ladder uh, end up committing economic crimes uh, to acquire power in this country, and, and then they evolve out of it. And that's, 
kind of what happened with the mafia back in the 70s. But also, uh, I think certainly the, the leaders especially saw the handwriting on the wall and uh, uh, did not want to end up in prison and, and insulated themselves or otherwise, you know, uh, they, they just they just were old men by that time. And they died. And then their successors uh, insulated themselves and, uh, as you said, went legit. And, and go to Vegas today. Vegas was set up for the purpose of laundering money for the mafia. Um, to launder money, you need uh, a cash-rich business. And there's no uh, business that's got more cash than a casino. And, and then you, you take that casino cash, that cash that's generated by people gambling, and you mix in your illegal drug money or, or whatever other proceeds of, of criminal activity you have. You mix that in with your casino revenue, report it all as income from the casino, and then distribute it to your mafia members' salaries and such. And you, that's what money laundering is. Uh, and that way you're at least paying taxes on it and you can't get convicted to tax evasion like Al Capone was back in, the, in, 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 in decades before RICO was passed. And so that's money laundering, and that's why Vegas was set up by the mafia. And uh, yeah, at a certain point, uh, the mafia, I'm sure, looked around and said, "We got a successful entertainment business here in the Nevada desert. Why are we using it for money laundering? We can charge people up the nose to come here and and uh, and and eat and stay and gamble and and watch entertainers." And so, if anybody goes to Vegas today, it's a very not a very cheap place to go back in the sixties and seventies. It used to be uh, very cheap to go because the mob didn't care whether it made money on tourists. It was making money, uh, money laundering. So that was its primary purpose. But nowadays, yeah, it's uh, not hard to see that Vegas has gone legit and um, you pay for it as a tourist. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a very good example of how uh, something evolved into a natural legitimate um Finally, finally, uh, Jeffrey, can you see the RICO law being used on maybe Donald Trump in the future, given his fairly colourful life? Well, yeah, I mean, um, that's been the big uh, news item over here in the United States, especially since uh, uh, he was indicted just yesterday on charges relating to January 6th. Uh, There is still uh, potential charges coming from the district attorney in Atlanta, and again, uh, her name is Fannie Willis. She has used RICO in a lot of different ways, the state RICO statute in many ways, and uh, she's not afraid to use it, and everyone is anticipating that she will probably use it against Donald Trump, but we don't know yet because the indictment hasn't been announced. If you read the newspapers, they're setting up barricades down in Atlanta. They're, They're preparing for the announcement of something, uh, and, and yes, people are anticipating that, that RICO will be involved in that, in those criminal charges. And unlike the Jack Smith, uh, charges that Donald faces, Donald Trump has recently faced, uh, he was, he was directly involved. He took the documents from DC to Mar-a-Lago. So you don't need RICO there. He actually did it. He, he, he did the crime that he's being accused of committing or he allegedly did the crime that he's being accused of committing. And uh, likewise, with the January 6th insurrection, he'll, you know, the allegation is, is that he said certain things on the mall that day that were intended to incite people to do uh, what they did. And he, he wasn't using intermediaries. 
Uh, whereas when you talk about the election interference that occurred in Georgia, uh, immediately after the, the the election, including the phone call, the, the notorious phone call to Secretary Raffensperger. Obviously, Trump made that call to Raffensperger. It wasn't Giuliani. It wasn't anyone else. So if there's election interference related to that phone call, RICO probably won't be used. But for the more extensive activities like intimidating the poll workers and uh, using the media to circulate uh, false statements about the election, uh that was an, a larger organization, uh, according to what uh, is, is known at this time through through the mainstream media, and that would be a circumstance more likely uh, more likely to involve RICO charges to the extent Donald Trump was engaged in those those broader efforts to interfere with the outcome of the election in Georgia. Jeffrey E. Grell, attorney at law, adjunct professor at the University of Minnesota School of Law and author of Grell on RICO. Jeffrey, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Thank you, Pat. And that's Jeffrey Grell talking to me a few days ago and it ends our short summer series looking into the history of the Mafia. It was researched by Anne-Marie Kane and you can listen back to all three instalments on our News Talk app powered by Golad. Just search for The Pat Kenny Show. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.